We are talking about the spirit of Christmas, and the spirit of Christmas is one of those things that pops up in a lot of different ways, a lot of different forms, and a lot of different movies. Here in Elf, we see this idea that the spirit of Christmas is what makes Santa's sleigh fly, or what makes Santa's reindeer fly. Um, you see the spirit of Christmas in a lot of other ways. In fact, I, I did a Google search. If you go ahead and put that slide up for us, this is what pops up if you Google the spirit of Christmas. Um, so what is Christmas spirit? Uh, an article that will tell you all about Christmas spirit. My favorite is this next one. It's an essential oil blend. Uh, <laughs> If that doesn't sum up the spirit of American Christmas, I don't know what does. It's capitalism. Um, it's 26 ways to get into the Christmas spirit. Uh, a lot of things pop up if you Google the spirit of Christmas. It's one of those phrases that everybody throws around, but everybody kind of has their own different definition of it, their own different meaning of it. It might be cheer. It might be joy. It might be peace. It might be giving, right? Everybody kind of has an idea of the spirit of Christmas, but maybe not a definition of what it actually is. Last week, I told you we were going to start a series for three weeks looking at the spirit of Christmas. And one of you, I'm going to tell on, in fact, he's in this room, Jimmy Ballantyne, came to me after service and he said, didn't we just spend eight weeks talking about the spirit of Christmas, the Holy Spirit? And I said, thanks for stealing my message next week. Uh, so I will tell you the spirit of Christmas we are going to look at through this series, three different perspectives. Three different ways we could answer that question, and today we are going to start in part one by looking at the Holy Spirit of Christmas. You see, the Holy Spirit is involved in the Christmas story all the way through. In fact, you might be surprised if we look into God's account in the book of Luke, how many times the Holy Spirit pops up in the story of Christmas. Uh, there's two accounts of the Christmas story biblically. There's Matthew's account and there's Luke's account. And Matthew references the Holy Spirit a couple different times in probably the most famous scene of the Holy Spirit when Mary finds out she's going to be pregnant, when the angel Gabriel appears. But Luke, the doctor, records for us at least five different points in the Christmas story where the Holy Spirit shows up. In fact, I would say probably six, but one of them is more implied. But five of them are explicitly stated where the Holy Spirit is involved in the Christmas story. And so we're going to read through the Christmas story, mostly in Luke 1, a little bit in Luke 2 this morning. And we're just kind of going to be jumping around to see the different places where the Holy Spirit is involved. Now, on Christmas Eve, we'll read the whole Christmas story, the Matthew and Luke accounts combined together, and we'll read through it uh, by candlelight. I think it's a, it's a really powerful time. It's something I look forward to every year. But this morning, we're going to see the impact of the Holy Spirit specifically. What you're going to find out is this. The Holy Spirit is all over Christmas. Everywhere we look in the Christmas story 2,000 years ago, and everywhere we look today, I believe the Holy Spirit is very involved in Christmas. So let's start in Luke chapter 1. This uh, event that we're going to read about in Luke chapter 1 is actually about 14 months before the birth of, of Jesus. The Christmas story begins in Luke uh, about one year and two months before Jesus shows up. And it starts with a story of some of Jesus' relatives. In fact, his mother Mary's relatives, a man named Zacharias, uh, and his wife Elizabeth. Uh, and they are old. The Bible doesn't tell us how old. We just know they're past childbearing age. They are too old to have kids, and they haven't had any. Uh, and so an angel is going to appear to a man, Zacharias. Uh, he is a priest. And for the first time in his life, in fact, the only time in his life, he is selected as the high priest. He's the priest who's going to go in and make a sacrifice for the entire nation 
of Israel in the temple. And so we pick up the story in the temple as this man, Jesus' uncle or cousin, we don't know exact relation, uh, is getting ready to make this sacrifice for the people of Israel. It says, verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Spoiler alert, next week, the spirit of Christmas, we're going to talk about angels at Christmas, these spirits who show up all over the Christmas story. You might be surprised how many times they pop up in the Christmas story as well. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. We'll see next week uh, that fear is the response a lot of times when the angel shows up. Uh, when, when God supernaturally has a, an experience in people's lives, a lot of times the immediate response is fear. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. I don't know who needs to hear this today, but somebody here needs to know God's heard your prayer. Zechariah and Elizabeth presumably have been praying for a very long time for a child. Praying for a very long time that God would bless them with the opportunity to be parents. And for whatever reason, in God's sovereignty, that prayer had not yet been answered. It's about to be answered if you don't know what's happening. Uh, they're about to find out that they're going to have a baby. Uh, but I need you to know this morning that just because God hasn't answered your prayer yet doesn't mean God hasn't heard your prayer. Just because God hasn't moved and responded in your situation yet doesn't mean God doesn't have a plan, and it doesn't mean that God's not up to something. Man, he says, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Verse 14, he will be a joy and delight to you. Now, I don't know what John the Baptist was like as a baby, but we know as an adult, John the Baptist was a little bit crazy, right? He was different. He didn't care what people thought. He lived out in the wilderness. He ate locusts and honey, dressed himself in camel hair. This was a different dude. My guess is John was a wild child. Uh, my guess is he was a hyper baby. Uh, he, he was all over the place. I, I just have a feeling John was into everything. I think he was all boy, uh, like just extremely all boy is my guess. And so I need to remind myself sometimes when my son Noah, who is all boy and into everything, is all over the place and destroying everything, he is a joy and a delight. Amen? Uh, he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. What a promise for your child. Your child's going to be great in the eyes of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. It's the only person we have this recorded about them in Scripture, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. Some of you over our last series as we talked about the Holy Spirit for eight weeks, you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You received a new experience with God. What an incredible thing. None of us in this room experienced that in the womb before birth. Side note, this is one of the biblical reasons why I believe abortion is not a good thing. One of the reasons why I believe it is taking a human life. That doesn't mean that we condemn people who have had an abortion. It doesn't mean we hate those who have done it, but it does mean that we believe that this is something we should stand against. This is not God's best. That a baby in the womb is a baby. Uh, because the Holy Spirit can fill someone in the womb. Even before, before birth, the Holy Spirit could come upon John the Baptist. Verse 16 says, He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Dwindle mentioned this morning 
this time of year, a lot of people come to Jesus. Man, there's something that happens as a culture that so often is far from God turns their eyes to a story centered on the Son of God. Well, John the Baptist, at the beginning of the Christmas story, it is foretold, it is prophesied, he's going to bring people back to God. And so John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. Now, we don't know exactly what point, post-conception, before birth, uh, but we know that he's filled with the Holy Spirit probably at least by the time that he's six months in the womb, and I'll show you why in a minute. But carrying on in Luke 1, we skip down to the famous passage about the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, Mary has the same angel, Gabriel, appear to her. And the angel says, you're going to have a baby, and the baby's going to be the son of God. And Mary responds, verse 34, how can this be? Because I'm a virgin. So the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So where is the Christmas story begin? Well, it literally begins with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit initiates the incarnation of Jesus. Now, God could have done this a number of ways, but he chose to have the Holy Spirit be the one who, who places Jesus in Mary's womb. Verse 38, even Elizabeth, your relative, now again, we don't know exactly what the relation is, something that she was a cousin, the, the Greek word here used is, is inexact. So she may have been Mary's cousin. She may have been kind of her aunt. She may have been like a first cousin once removed, right? We, we just know that they were related. So Mary and Elizabeth are related, and the angel says, hey, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old, old age. And she was said to be unable to conceive. She who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. So this is about five months after the angel appears to Elizabeth. Now the angel appears to Mary. We don't know if Mary conceives at this moment, uh, but we imagine it's probably very soon after this conversation. And then the angel makes this declaration, for no word from God will ever fail. Some of you need to be reminded this morning that God's heard your prayers. Some of you need to be reminded this morning that no word from God will ever fail. That promise that God made in your heart, that, that dream that he placed for you, that that word from God will not fail. If you'll continue to trust him and continue to believe him, he has a plan. And the angel tells Mary, hey, no word from God will ever fail. Even the word that says this old person can have a baby who's not supposed to, this word that says this virgin can have a baby who's not supposed to, they're violating scientific laws right and left uh, as God is giving babies to people who should not be able to have them. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is all over Christmas. Now, we could stop with these two supernatural babies, but the Holy Spirit's involvement in the story doesn't stop here. In fact, Mary very soon goes to visit her relative Elizabeth. Many believe that she went to visit Elizabeth because as a young girl who is not married, who's engaged but not married and is pregnant, she's downcast. She's outcast in her own community. And so she has to leave because she's being persecuted for being pregnant. But for whatever reason, she goes to visit her cousin or her relative Elizabeth. Verse 41, as Mary comes to see Elizabeth, the Bible says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. John the Baptist leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So first the baby gets filled with the Holy Spirit. Now mama gets filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows up again. Now, I don't know if you've ever had two pregnant people in the same room, but I've never seen two babies communicate across wombs before, right? This is, this is not normal. This is not typical. Obviously, if you've had twins or something, those babies communicate in the same womb, uh, but it is not normal to be able to connect across wombs. 
What happened? The Holy Spirit revealed Jesus to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist just wins like the, the womb baby Olympic medal uh, for leap, jumping in the womb, right? Like he just gives the biggest jump ever recorded in the womb. He jumps for joy. He leaps for joy as he knows, man, that's, that's the Messiah. That's the one. That's my Savior in that other womb. Now, if we do the math, we don't know exactly when this occurs, but we think it's probably either the first or second month of Mary's pregnancy. Jesus was tiny, right? Like, I don't know, scientifically, somewhere in there, like he was very small, it was, very, it was the first trimester. And yet through the Holy Spirit, that little insignificant seeming person, man, John recognizes from one womb to the other, that's Jesus. That's a powerful thing. It's an incredible thing that he leaps for joy in the presence of the Savior. Skipping down even more in chapter 1. Now, John the Baptist is born. And as John is born, his father, Zechariah, has restored his ability to speak. Because Zechariah didn't believe that his wife was going to get pregnant. So the angel said, hey, you're not going to be able to speak for nine months. uh, But you're going to name the baby John. And when he actually writes down, hey, the baby's name is John. His ability to speak is restored after the baby's born. When this happens, verse 67, it says, His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So this whole family is getting filled with the Holy Spirit. John gets filled with the Holy Spirit first. Elizabeth gets filled with the Holy Spirit. Man, Zechariah gets filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is filling all over this Christmas story. And then in chapter 2 of Luke, we find one last incidence where the Holy Spirit does something specific. In fact, I think there's two incidences in chapter 2, uh, but one of them is not specifically articulated for us. It doesn't explicitly say the Holy Spirit, so we're not going to cover that. I'm going to show you the last one that's explicit. There's a man named Simeon, uh, and Simeon is very old. Uh, in fact, we'll pick up the story in verse 25. It says, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What's the consolation of Israel? The coming of the Messiah. Man, the the, the Messiah is going to show up. The Savior is coming. He was waiting for the consecration of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Messiah. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us at what point in Simeon's life that he receives this promise from God that you're going to see the Messiah. But I imagine it like this. I imagine this promise came a whole lot earlier in life. I imagine this promise probably came in middle age, if not even maybe in his teens. And for years, Simeon has been clinging to this promise, hoping in this promise. I imagine that he probably got to a point where he started to question the promise from time to time. Am I really going to see the Messiah? I'm old. I'm not going to be here much longer. But it says the Holy Spirit was on him. Verse 27, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. So the Holy Spirit moves on him. He's leads him to go into the temple courts. He goes to the temple courts and says, when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required. What does that mean? It means Jesus is probably eight days old, and he's coming in to be dedicated at the temple, and he's coming in to be circumcised. That's what they did on the eighth day of a child. So if Christmas was December 25th, which I hate to break it to some of you, Jesus wasn't actually born on December 25th. Uh, It's just the day that we celebrate it. But if it was, this would be January 2nd. Okay, it's eight days later. Uh, It says, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. He said, I'm ready to go. Take me now, Lord. 
You fulfilled your promise to me. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation for the Gentiles, or to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. So the Holy Spirit reveals to Simeon, not only this is the Messiah. Now imagine Mary and Joseph, okay? Mary and Joseph, young couple, not even married yet, just had a baby, right? Uh, 15 years old probably is around the age that Mary is. They get... They come to the temple, and they're probably, like, trying to protect this baby at all costs. I mean, have you ever been around a new mom? Like, everybody shows up trying to pick that, grab that kid and pick up that kid. Like, moms are protective of their baby, right, as they should be. It's a good thing. We don't need to, like, infringe on mother's personal space. Also, don't touch pregnant women, right? That's just another tip for you. Uh, but so this old man who they've never met before shows up, and he comes, and he just grabs Jesus. I can imagine Mary and Joseph are kind of freaking out. And then he prophesies and he speaks, led by the Spirit of God, and declares that this Savior, man, he's going to be a light of revelation for the Gentiles. That's most of us in this room. And the glory of your people Israel. Most people didn't know Jesus was the Messiah. I don't think Mary and Joseph showed up at the temple like carrying signs and shouting, hey, everybody, the Messiah's here. Come check him out. Come meet him. I, I don't think that's how they rolled. I think they were being pretty discreet about it. I think they were wrestling with it themselves still a little bit. Now, what does this even mean that we're bringing up and raising the Messiah? And this man greets them, and he declares, he prophesies, just confirming for them again, this is truly what God has intended. You see, the Holy Spirit was all over the first Christmas. What does that have to do with us today? See, the same Holy Spirit who was all over the first Christmas is all over our Christmas today, if we'll let him be. He's involved and engaged in our Christmases and our Christmas time and everything that's going on. And we just spent eight weeks talking about the Holy Spirit, about how he's our helper, about how he fills us, about how he gives gifts, about how he baptizes us. We talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. I want to talk this morning about the Holy Spirit. I want to give you four characteristics of a Spirit-led Christmas. If we'll allow the Holy Spirit to lead us in this holiday season, it's going to look different than if we don't. See, for some of us, the holidays our time we really look forward to. I'm one of those people, man. I love Christmas. Christmas is a, is a celebration for me every year, but I know that's not everybody. I know for some of us, Christmas is frustrating. It's stressful. It's hectic. It's chaotic. Maybe it's depressing. Uh, in fact, we know every year, year after year, that the national suicide rate is at its highest in the Christmas season because Christmas, Christmas can be very difficult. For some of us, Christmas... We look at it this year, and all we're thinking about is the person who won't be at Christmas with us. Maybe the person who passed away this year. Maybe a person who passed away a long time ago. Maybe a person who walked out of our life recently, who's not in our life. Christmas can be a reminder, oftentimes, of what we don't have. And yet, I believe if we'll allow the Holy Spirit to move in our lives, our Christmas will look different. So I'm going to give you four characteristics of a Spirit-led Christmas. These aren't the only characteristics. He's going to do many more things than this. But here's four things that will happen if we'll allow him to be in our Christmas today. The first one is this, is we'll walk in irrational generosity. Irrational generosity. How did Christmas start? The very irrationally generous move by God. He sent his only son. It doesn't make sense, right? Like it's, it's scandalous. None of us as parents would sacrifice our son for everyone else. And yet God in his goodness, God in his love, looked down and he said, I'm going to give the greatest thing I have. 
the most important thing I have, the most valuable thing I have, I'm going to give my son. Christmas started with a move of irrational, scandalous generosity. I already talked at our offering time about some incredible generosity you guys have been walking with. And I don't know if you've seen the fellowship hall and all the gifts that have come in for our angel tree, but you guys didn't go cheap for these angel tree kids. You guys have been incredibly generous for these kids. I'm so proud of our church's generosity. I'm so proud that you've grabbed a hold of this idea that, that man, God can use me to bless someone else. You've walked in irrational generosity. About 10 years ago, in 2011, I stumbled across uh, a sermon on the internet from a pastor who I'd never heard of before, never listened to before. And I remember I was, I was laying in bed. We were at our house in South Haven. Uh, and I start watching this message. And I got so engrossed. And I'm like weeping in bed. And about 10 minutes into it, I'm like, okay, you got to watch this too. And so my wife sits there and, and we watch this sermon. Uh, and it was a Christmas sermon. He talked about giving. Uh, and God moved in that message in us in a lot of ways. But one of the things he laid on our heart um, is we had just been given a car. We'd been given a Ford Mustang, uh, and we were excited for it. We had some plans for that car. And in the midst of this message, God told us he gave us the car to give it away. And he laid somebody on our heart who didn't have a vehicle, who needed a vehicle, and we made a decision right there, lying in bed with tears running down both of our faces, we're going to give this car away. Uh, and so we did it real big, like we put a big bow on it and dropped it off at the house and tried to like knock on the door and run away and like make a big presentation of it, right? But we were moved to do something irrationally generous. At that point in time, man, that car would have made a big difference for us financially. Uh, we were not in a place where we are right now financially. We're in a much better place to be generous. But God moved on us and said, I want you to give this thing away. So we chose to walk in irrational generosity. I don't know what God's going to lead you to do, but I believe all of us have a role to play in generosity, not just at the Christmas season, right? But there's often time that these needs kind of flesh out this time of year. So maybe for you, it's going to be that person on the side of the road. I don't give to everybody I see on the side of the road who's asking for money, but sometimes the Holy Spirit pricks my heart and says, yes, I want you to be generous here. Uh, just the other day, we were coming out of Kroger, and there was a family asking for money, uh, and I felt moved by God. I, I gave him 20 bucks, right? Not the same as giving him a Mustang, right? And he didn't get the, the same generosity, but I felt like, hey, this is something I'm supposed to contribute to. I don't know what they're going to do with that money. I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing, but I felt like I was supposed to do it, so I did. I think God's going to move on you to give something away. Maybe it's somebody you don't know. Maybe it's somebody you do know. Maybe it's a specific need that you're aware of. In fact, somebody texted me this week and said, hey, we feel led to, to bless a certain family at Christmas time, but we want to do it anonymously. Is there a way that we can make that happen? I said, of course, we'll make that happen for you. And so they're providing for and blessing a certain family in our church. Now, we had another couple in our church who felt moved by God, and they provided $2,500 worth of Visa gift cards for us to bless people with. You know what that is? That's a rational generosity. That's incredible generosity. I believe that's the Holy Spirit. I believe that's God speaking to people's hearts, causing them to give sacrificially, give above and beyond what's normal, above and beyond what's expected, above and beyond what's, what's habitual. I believe God wants his people to be marked by irrational generosity. Why? Because Christmas started with irrational generosity. God gave far beyond what any of us could ever imagine or ask for. So that's the first characteristic of a spirit-led Christmas. The second one feels like the opposite. The second one is this. It's supernatural stewardship. 
See, I grew up, man, I understood generosity from an early age. For whatever reason, this was something that always came easy for me. I never had a hard time tithing. When I was three years old, God moved on my heart. And I went to my mom and I said, Mom, I need to give all my money to the poor. And we went and we broke up in my Snoopy piggy bank and we gave $5 to poor people, right? Like this is just something that's always come natural and easy to me. I'm sure that they provided a lot of meals with those $5 and pennies. Um, this isn't something I've struggled with, but stewardship is something I struggled with a lot. Uh, This is something I didn't understand. You see, the Bible talks a lot about generosity, but it also talks about stewardship. Uh, God stewarded his gift of Jesus very well. He didn't just give Jesus to any random people. He picked Mary and Joseph, that these were going to be parents who knew how to raise this child, that would protect this child, that would be obedient. Man, there is obedience all over the Christmas story. And they had to move to another country to protect their child. This totally uprooted their lives. God stewarded his gift very well. And I believe God calls us to stewardship. What does this mean at Christmas time? It means you're not called to go in $3,000 of credit card debt to get gifts for everybody. Right? We've bought into this lie in America that Christmas equals gifts. Uh, oftentimes you'll hear people say this, and people I love say this. People from our church have said this, and I'm not trying to, like, criticize or step on your toes. It just, it irks me when I hear it, that, that well, man, my, I lost my job this time of year. I'm, I'm worried my kids aren't going to have a Christmas. Man, we want to step in, and we want to help your kids get some gifts for Christmas, but can I just tell you, whether your kids get Christmas or not, they're going to have Christmas. I mean, whether they get gifts or not, they're going to have Christmas. Christmas is not presents under a tree. That's a part of it, and I'm grateful for it, man. We got some cool stuff for our kids this year. We're ahead of it. We've already got all their gifts bought. Like, we are on top of it this year. I'm grateful for that. Uh, but what you don't need to do is feel this pressure that, man, this Christmas has to be so magical, and it has to live up to what they saw in this movie and what every other kid at school gets, and, and you go out and you squander what God's blessed you with so that you can keep up with some other people, so that you can impress some family member or some other person. That's not what God, that's not spirit-led, right? Spirit-led Christmas is a Christmas of supernatural stewardship, Yes, we're going to walk in generosity, but we're also going to walk in stewardship. And those two things seem contradictory sometimes. Man, it, it seems like which one is it? So how do we know the difference? Here's how we know the difference. We ask God. We allow his spirit to speak. In fact, James 1.5 says this. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should come to God and ask, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So if you don't know this year, do I need to... Man, spend this $400 on this gift? Do I need to spend this $200 on this gift? Do I need to do this? Ask God. And the promise of God is he's going to give you the wisdom. Now, who is that gives us wisdom? It doesn't explicitly say it in James 1.5, but that's the Holy Spirit. That's the one who lives in you. That's the one who leads you and guides you. So a spirit-led Christmas, he's going to help you answer, is this really a good thing to walk in irrational generosity? Or is my motive wrong? Am I trying to impress somebody? Am I, am I trying to please somebody? Am I trying to live up to somebody's expectations? And so I'm buying this out of guilt or out of obligation or out of materialism. Man, those are, are wrong motivations. So ask God, and the promise is he's going to give generously without finding fault. So that means you may have blown this every other year at Christmas. You, you may have a habit where, man, I just go into debt at Christmas time and then I have to work th- overtime for the first three months of the new year to try to catch up and pay off Christmas. You may have really bad habits. The Bible says he's going to give you generous wisdom without finding fault. Generous, that means it's more than enough. It means you're going to know with confidence, okay, is this a good thing for us to do 
or not. So we're going to walk in irrational generosity, but simultaneously we're going to walk in supernatural stewardship. Third characteristic of a spirit-led Christmas is confounding peace. Confounding peace. The reality is peace is one of those words that we throw around a lot of times at Christmas time that a lot of people don't walk in. Right? Like the angels, we're going to talk about them next week. But they show up to the shepherds, and what do they say? They say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So we associate peace with the Christmas season. It sounds great, but most of us, when we really think about Christmas, we don't think peaceful thoughts. Right? We think stressful thoughts. We think, i got to be at this event, and i got to be at this event, and this Christmas party, and my kids are in this musical, and we got to go to practice. And all of this stuff comes with the Christmas season. And yet I believe that God offers Peace. What does confounding mean? Well, the definition of confounding is this. To confound means to cause surprise or confusion in someone by acting against their expectations. Christmas is in, what, 21 days? 20 20 days, excuse me. Some of us have already set expectations that are very unpeaceful. You have expectations of drama in your family for Christmas. You have expectations of stress at work as things get busy. You have expectation of of pressure, right? Like some of us have already set some very unhealthy expectations for Christmas. And I believe God wants to give you confounding peace, peace that passes understanding, but peace that runs contrary to those expectations. I want you to reset expectations. But you know what, God, I can have peace this Christmas season, even though I lost a loved one. Even though my family doesn't look the way that I want it to this Christmas, even though I don't have the budget to be as generous as I would like to be, right? Like, we can have all kinds of reasons why things are broken at Christmas. And here's the thing. God didn't send Jesus and promise everything's going to be good and everything's going to be easy. But he did send Jesus to say, this is the Prince of Peace. He promised we'd have peace even in the midst of brokenness, even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of challenge and struggle, whatever that challenge and struggle may look like in your holiday season. So we're going to walk in irrational generosity and supernatural stewardship and confounding peace. And number four characteristic of a spirit-led Christmas is a recognition of Jesus. A recognition of Jesus. We just read through Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. Everywhere that the Holy Spirit shows up, what happens? People recognize the Messiah. People know this is the one. Let's uh, talk about a little bit, two, two of specific examples. So who are the ones that recognize Jesus by the Holy Spirit? Well, the first one was John the Baptist. He's probably right around seven or eight months old in the womb, right? He, he's a month or two away from being born, and he recognizes the Messiah. He hasn't yet breathed oxygen with his own lungs. He hasn't yet had eyes set on the outside world. And yet through the power of the Holy Spirit, he recognizes Jesus. Youngest person probably who ever recognized Christ. We don't know. We don't have any biblical account of anyone experiencing this at a younger age. Maybe it happened. Uh, but this is the youngest account we have. And then we got Simeon on the whole other side of the spectrum. This old man who's been promised, you're going to see the Messiah before you pass away. And the Holy Spirit leads him to the temple at the exact time when the Messiah happens to be coming in as an eight-day-old baby. And he recognizes this is the one. This is the one who came to restore the hope for Israel. This is the one who came to bring salvation to the Gentiles. This is the one. We saw the extremely young John, the extremely old Simeon. Why is that significant? 
Because in Joel chapter 2, prophesying about the last days, about the generation that will come as Jesus comes, it says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Young and old are going to have revelation by the power of the Holy Spirit. It says, verse 29, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. We didn't have time to dig into every story, uh, but we see the Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth, right, in the Christmas story. We see the Holy Spirit comes on Mary in the Christmas story and places Jesus inside. The Holy Spirit came for young. Holy Spirit came for old. Holy Spirit came for male. Holy Spirit came for female. Holy Spirit came for Jew. Holy Spirit came for Gentiles. What does that mean? It means the Holy Spirit is for everybody. doesn't matter your demographic today. Doesn't matter your past today, doesn't matter what you've gone through, doesn't matter your tax bracket. The Holy Spirit has come for you, and He wants to lead you through this Christmas season. So, if we'll allow the Holy Spirit to to evidence in our life, and if we go back to one of the early messages in our Holy Spirit series, series, we talked about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, pop up in my life? It doesn't pop up by saying, hey, I'm gonna go have more peace. Right, so my homework for you this week is not to go have peace. My homework is to engage the Holy Spirit because he's going to bear fruit in your life, and that fruit he bears is going to be peace. Right? He's the one who's going to help you have a rational generosity. He's the one who's going to help you walk in supernatural stewardship. He's the one who's going to give you confounding peace. He's the one who's ultimately going to reveal Jesus to you. Christmas Eve coming up 19 days. Can't wait. I'm so excited, man. God moves every year mightily in this service. We put so much time and effort and planning and preparation into it. We've got an amazing team who are really blessed, and I can't wait to see what God does this year. But you know my greatest prayer is that Jesus would be revealed. Some of you are going to bring friends. Some of you are going to bring family members. Some of you are going to bring people who are very, very lost. And every year at Christmas, the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus. He takes those blinders off. In fact, for you, if you're here today and you're a believer, you've already experienced this. The Holy Spirit's already revealed Jesus to you. That's the only way you were able to give your life to Christ. But I believe even in the Christmas season, he's going to reveal Jesus to you in some other ways, in some other places. I believe you can see Jesus in some stuff, in some family events, in some stuff that's stressful, in some stuff that brings drama, in some work events, in some work Christmas party where you know a whole lot of ungodly stuff goes down. I believe you can bring Jesus into that situation. I believe you can see Jesus in the midst of that situation. I believe the Holy Spirit wants to reveal Jesus to you, to your heart, to your family. And he wants to reveal Jesus through you to others this Christmas season. So what do we do? We engage the Holy Spirit. Man, we invite him to work in our lives. We allow him to go to work. And we adjust expectations. Don't settle for just another random Christmas. Don't settle for just another going through the motions. In fact, this morning, Hunter already referred to it a little bit, but in our pre-service meeting, we're, we're talking about some stuff, and he said, well, man, it's, it's not going to be like powerful, in-depth worship time today because we're singing Christmas songs. I said, you know what? Man, I rebuke that. <laughs> I believe God wants to reveal Jesus even through Christmas music. Now, I don't think every Christmas song, right, Mariah Carey, he's probably not revealing Jesus through Mariah Carey's Christmas songs. Uh, <laughs> But because you've heard it three billion times, right? It's everywhere. Uh, that's probably not revealing Jesus. But there are songs that will reveal Jesus to us and through us. And, man, we're going to engage with that stuff this Christmas season. Let God reveal Jesus to you in a new way. 
See, the reality is you've probably already had Jesus revealed at Christmas. So you don't need a new revelation of Jesus. You just need a restoration of an old revelation. Because, man, it just gets old. And we do it every year. And we go through the motions and we lose that, that wonder. Man, my prayer for you this year is that you would stand in awe that Jesus came for you. That would become real and fresh and alive and new again. That Jesus came for you and he came for me. What an incredible miracle that God's done for us. He gives us his irrational generosity, supernatural stewardship, confounding peace, and a revelation to Jesus. Would you pray?